The DSR member survey is now live. Your voice matters and we want to hear it. So please take a moment to fill out the survey and help us make our podcasts even better. You can find a link to the survey in the show description or on our social media platforms. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode in a special limited series of podcasts from the DSR Network. No issue is more important to the world than climate change. Later this year, world leaders will gather in Dubai for COP28, the most important international summit at which critical climate issues are discussed. This series of podcasts will look at the crucial issues to be discussed at COP28 from the perspective of leading experts from around the world. Each of the podcasts will feature elements from a series of five live expert roundtables we convene to explore the road to COP28 and beyond. Each of the roundtables are hosted by highly regarded leaders from the climate and international affairs communities. The discussions are presented as they happened, live and without editing. We were very fortunate to have as the chairperson of our fourth roundtable discussion, Allison Agston, the director of the USC Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication and curator at the Wrigley Institute for Environment and Sustainability. This panel, entitled Arts, Activism, and Combating Climate Change, explores the role that artists and activists play in the fight against climate change and the ways everyone can do their part to create a more green future. This series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation of COP28. However, it should be noted for this As for all DSR Network podcasts, all content is completely editorially independent, and each of the independent chair people of these roundtables have been solely responsible for the direction and substantive focus of the discussions. Now, on to the discussion, the latest in our special series, The Road to COP28. We hope you will join us each and every week from now through COP28 to hear more unique perspectives on this vital event and the issues to be discussed there. Thank you. Welcome, I'm Allison Agston, and I will be chairing today's virtual roundtable discussion, the fourth in the Road to COP28 series. Thanks to all of the experts who have joined for this conversation and to all of you who are listening via the DSR network. We want this discussion to be as interactive as possible, so while I will call on each of our participants to respond to specific questions I will pose, we encourage everyone to be as engaged as possible throughout. With COP28 barely more than a month away, a number of critical questions remain. Anne de Carbuccia is founder of the One Planet, One Future Foundation, 
as a filmmaker who has traveled to the world's most remote locations to document endangered environments, species, and cultures, set the scene for us. And tell us about something at stake with climate change that you've seen with your own eyes. I've uh, been going around the planet to try and artistically document um, what we have, what we're about to lose, but more than anything, what we've already lost. So obviously I've been going very often to the front line to a lot of these places. And I've just seen, you know, climate change, especially in the world of glaciers, but also underwater, it's been really striking. And what has been the most impactful to me is going back to these places very often and seeing how fast um, things have been changing. There's like a sort of acceleration of, of change and uh, linked to climate change. And that's been extremely shocking to me. And that's why, you know, I, I created this film that um, that's coming out this year about about that, about how fast things are happening and how much people are not aware of it. Can you describe maybe one of those changes that you've seen? Um, one of the main changes, I think, is on glaciers. That's been really striking to me, especially in the Himalayas. I went to a very remote location, which is um, Upper Mustang, um, and I went to document climate refugees. So that was also something that was so shocking is to, um, it's really hard to imagine that they can be climate refugees up there and they're moving um, and they're leaving their millennial villages because um, they're running out of water. And one of the main reasons why they're running out of water is because um, the glaciers are uh, obviously receding, but also changing paths and the water patterns have changed so much. So going up there and seeing these villages where, you know, you have like all this ancient art and these ca caverns and these caves. And so you know that humanity has been present there for millennials and seeing them now move, having to move was extremely shocking at so many level, obviously on an environmental level, but also on a social impact level. Thank you for that evocative description. Stephen, I think I'll go to you next. Stephen Crawford is founder and executive producer of Climate Music Project. By the name of Stephen's organization, I'll bet you can guess the medium in which he works, but perhaps you might not guess that in one of his previous roles, he was director of the U.S. Department of Commerce's office in San Francisco. Stephen, as we approach COP, how do you see policy and the arts intertwining? You know, that life seems like it was an eternity ago. And um, I have to say, I'm now steeped in a very different world. So I don't know that I have a really good answer to that question. I do know that what's super important now is in the United States, especially in advance, uh, you know, sort of understanding what, what's, what's happening in the United States, that we need to really activate a lot more people to under help them understand the nature of the emergency and that we also all have a role to play in that it's not too late to do something about it. It's, it's urgent only because we still have a window of opportunity to do something about it. So I think for me right now and our work right now, it's not so much policy we're paying attention to, but it's really the grassroots level really trying to activate a much bigger audience um, who then will hopefully pay attention to what's going on in the policy sphere. And could you tell us a little bit about how you do that? Well, uh, through music. I mean, we 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 produce what's called science guided music, which is music that in incorporates references to science. That music comes about through an active collaboration between a composer and one or more scientists. And the idea is that it's really a kind of what we refer to as as a as a hearts to minds approach. The idea is that there is an emotional response through music. It's something palpable. We really try to put flesh on something that's uh, for many people still an abstract problem, even though 
In much of the world, it's not anymore. But for many Americans, it's still quite abstract, unless you unless you really are, are, are affected, for example, by a hurricane or some of the horrific fires we've had in California, but still too many people don't connect the dots. Um, and so music is a way that we can help people to, we, we can take the science and in a short amount of time, communicate insights that then help to make things less abstract and felt. And I can give you a really quick example of how that works. So we have in our performances always an audience engagement segment. And after one of our very early performances in 2015, an, a, a woman got up and she explained her experience. She said, and, and I should also say that all of, our, all of our music has a visual element to it. So this woman stood up and she said, you know, I was listening to this music and I was watching the years go by. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, that's what the music sounded like when I was born. And she said, well, and that's what the music sounded like when my daughter was born. And she said, well, and this is what the music could sound like when my granddaughter might be born. And she said, all of a sudden, that experience dropped something that had been abstract for her and dropped it into the arc of her family's own history. And so that was something that 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 really resonated with her. And it made something that had been abstract, something very personal. And so we attempt to make climate science personal. Anna Teresa Fernandez is a performance artist and painter. I'd like to go to her next. Anna Teresa, Stephen's background uh, as both a policymaker and an artist made me think a little bit about a quote of yours that I read related to climate oriented, a climate oriented installation you created that visualizes projected sea rise. I read that you said, I'm not a climatologist, I'm not a scientist. Can I do this? I'm wondering what wisdom you can share to help artists and others who are not scientists to take the leap and engage with climate work. Thank you for that, um, Allison. I think that, as Stephen mentioned, there is this head-heart connection that I think oftentimes we don't utilize to our advantage. I think it's it's a symbiosis that needs to occur. And as a person that learns mostly through somatic experiences, I realized early on that the educational system was something that did not work for me. And uh, having gone through private schools that had absolutely no art um, opportunities, when I became an adult, I was finally able to expand both my practices, my voice, everything that came from a very somatic experience that came from learning through the senses. And I think that that for me has been imperative in bringing that type of um, opportunities to audiences. And what I mean is, so I think when we're, we're talking about any issue, social justice issues, climate issues, I have this, um, the three A approach, the triple A approach, which is creating awareness, um, providing access, taking action. And I think through these three uh, three steps, that is the beginning of creating the formula for agency in which people can actually activate their own power to manifest some change. And so I talk a lot about um, ocean literacy. And I mean, in no way am I going into the field of Anne, of that in-depth experience of literacy. But what I'm talking about is the idea that 55% of the population does not know how to swim. And so you're automatically taking that half of the population away 
from being invested in wanting to learn about the ocean. Why? Because they can't experience it fully in depth. And so when people sit here, the fact that, oh, the sea levels are going to rise six feet, it's a number, right? But when I first heard that statistic, I'm a really tall Mexican. I'm 5'10". And I was like, wow, that's actually taller than me. And when we experience tidal flows and the, the shore rising, it's in a horizontal way, right? We just walk backwards. So we don't really, and especially if you don't go into the ocean, you don't really experience that verticality rise. And so for me, how do you create a safe environment in which people can really fully understand the impact of that six foot level rise, which is what on the horizon was embodying these bodies that actually held six feet of sea level rise were able to bring people closer to that idea into that predicament into that prediction of what is going to be on the horizon for us. Um, and I think, again, going back to uh, Stephen's statement of like, creating that symbiotic relationship where the heart can follow the head and vice versa. And I think that literacy begins us to move towards and not away from these like very daunting apocalyptic um, information that we, that's constantly being thrown, especially now these days. So when you say somatics, could you talk a little bit about what that means for listeners who might not be familiar with the concept? Yeah, so somatic is, it's, we, I mean, through the educational field, we learn about right and wrong, right? Two plus two equals four. It doesn't equal five. When we learn through our bodies, when we hear a song, when we touch velvet, when we, even like when we smell a freshly baked um, cookie, we take in information through our bodies, through our senses, and that might elicit another part of us. It might elicit a, elicit a memory. It might elicit a thought. It might provoke our imagination. And so acquiring information through these senses, for me, is what really provokes that up openness and imagination. It stokes us. And so we are able to learn about volume as we go into the water and we see it expand around us in a bathtub, right? Which is how we were able to learn about mass. And so that application of feeling and information is a way for us to evolve and grow. I love the phrase you just said, when we touch velvet, like a line of poetry. Uh, all right, next, I would like to go to Michael Girard. He is the founder and faculty director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School. Uh, Michael, increasingly, I see artists making work about climate change that is activist in nature or that has activist undertones. I'm wondering if there are any legal reasons we should distinguish art from activism and vice versa. Uh, no, it, it's all protected speech under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, whether it's a song or a painting or it's people marching around with placards. It's all protected speech and political speech, uh, speech that has some kind of a political content is subject to special protections under the First Amendment. Um, there's not an exemption from the otherwise uh, applicable laws against trespass and vandalism and so forth. But as long as no other law is being uh, violated, uh, it's really all the same legally. 
Okay. I'd like to ask you uh, a follow-up question, maybe not a follow-up question, but a question related to COP. I'm wondering, again, from the perspective of uh, a lawyer, what do you expect in terms of freedom of expression at the upcoming COP in Dubai? And more specifically, what is or is not possible for artists based on your knowledge of the organizers? Well, it's a real concern. The First Amendment does not apply in Dubai. Dubai is a repressive regime in many ways, and they uh, have tended not to tolerate uh, uh, dissent or criticism of the government or that kind of thing. In preparation for the upcoming COP, uh, the organizers released a statement um, um, saying that uh, visitors will be permitted to assemble peacefully to have their voices heard in designated areas. So we're not sure what areas will be designated. At the COP um, uh, last year in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, the designated area was quite remote from where most of the people were and where most of the press were. Uh, so there's a, a great deal of concern about this COP, which, of course, is chaired by the chairman of a big oil company. Uh, so th this is uh, there are a number of issues here, and we don't yet know uh, what's going to be allowed where. Will you be there by any chance? No. I'm not making anybody it here, Is anybody in this Zoom right now going to be there? Oh, okay, good to know. Actually, Stanley, maybe I will I will go to you next. Uh, following those really interesting remarks from Michael and you as an artist, an artist of the written word, a, a writer, I'm wondering what your take is on what Michael just said about the climate for artists in Dubai during COP? Yeah, I, I have this very really complex feeling that um, we urgently need this kind of climate narrative, like transformation for everyone, but it seems like uh, we lack a lot of like methods and distribution channels to do the thing. And of course, me, myself, I, I try my best to using science fiction as a genre um, to educate people, to help, to um, how to balance this kind of like cognitive uh, symmetry, like uh, it's the long and slow process when we try to uh, really understand and, and 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 try to feel what is going on out there. Maybe sometimes it's, it's quite far away from our daily experience. And, but sometimes I just feel like uh, um, a lot of black like, media, a lot of platform, they might just want to take a little piece of the, you know, the cream on the surface and they just abandon the rest of the cake. So this is how I feel about it. Maybe they want to greenwash themselves and just try to be like, uh, you know, ESG stuff. But um, I think we no need more efforts to be made um, to help all these people working in the industry and also the creative people we have this collective effort and to try to make some real, you know, authentic and, and very powerful narrative in no matter what kind of format to be seen and to reach out to the people, even all of those like MAPA, like MAPA uh, um, um, people. So because they're the ones who suffer the most uh, from this climate change. Benjamin Von Wong, also known as Von Wong, is an artist, activist, and photographer. Von Wong, you work with organizations to help them visualize their green initiatives through commission works of art. At a moment 
when consumers are more aware than ever of greenwashing, as Stanley mentioned, how should artists evaluate corporate clients to ensure the work of those clients represents more than lip service? I don't, I don't know if there's a simple answer to this, um, but the morality or the, the moral framework that I use to make decisions on who I work with um, is first and foremost, uh, does the money I take prevent me from doing the work or saying the things that need to be said? And if, if the answer is yes, then uh, I don't take it. If the answer is no, then sure, take the money. I mean, all money is dirty if you go back far enough and all money has some ulterior motive um, if you look at it, um, uh, depending on the direction you look at it. And so ultimately at the end of the day, like to create work to survive in this world, which is extractive and colonial and capital capitalist in nature, um, you have to take money from somewhere and you have to find ways of um, maybe putting that money to good use uh, when it comes to working with corporations generally speaking they have these quarterly budgets that they're going to be spending regardless and if if you have a way of taking that and imbuing it with a, a sense of, uh, like uh, with the ability of asking them the hard questions and getting them to come along for the ride and 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 guiding that conversation and narrative in a specific way then i think that's you know money well spent um with the work that i do Specifically, I always try to think about how is the project that I'm doing going to work within the general framework of an entire movement. So uh, sure, a company might be switching um, one of their product lines from uh, disposable to refillable. And sure, we can argue that that is not enough, but it is a step in the right direction. And I think we need to have a good balance of carrot and stick. We need to encourage good behaviors. And we also need to make sure that everyone knows that it's not quite enough. Um, and if if we can actually get these corporations to compete against one another to be the best they possibly can be, then that is always a good thing. And so, so long as we're not going in anything that's blatant greenwashing, where people are claiming things that are completely false, uh, making claims that they cannot keep, um, and that I think you can understand very clearly when you just have these conversations with the companies um, first out. And so, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Follow-up question. There is more and more discussion about green hushing versus green washing. Green hushing is the phenomenon of corporations not speaking about their green initiatives because of some of the backlash that you alluded to, Von Wong. Um, leadership at those corporations might get the feeling that nothing they do is quite good enough and that they're going to be attacked if they communicate about their work. Are you seeing more green hushing I don't know. I mean, I, I've certainly heard of the terminology. I think still more prevalent than green hushing is green wishing. Like there are just a lot of people that just wish that whatever, like they're all, they're in all, all those sustainability positions, all doing ESG work, and they all have the best of intentions and they're trying their best within the framework of a corporate structure. And they, they have all this optimism around how this, this little thing that they're doing is making a big difference. And it, to a certain extent it is, but it isn't necessarily proportional to the amount of damage that's being done, right? So the response isn't proportional. Um, and I think that there's just enough demand even within corporations of people wanting to do the right thing and people that are fighting for progress that I haven't felt personally that the amount of fear of taking action is overriding the amount of desire for change and progress. I I, I personally still feel quite optimistic Um and and mostly more worried about the green wishing, like all the all the optimism. Like, are we actually being realistically? Are, are we taking uh, steps that are realistically aligned with with the reality of the situation? So, yeah. 
Renat yep. Wagner is a climate economist also at Columbia. And I'm really excited that we get to have an economist in the mix amongst artists to get a really different perspective. Von Wong mentioned uh, sustainability positions at many companies now. There's a vice president of sustainability. I'm wondering if uh, you can talk about that a little bit. Um, are these positions able to affect change generally? What's going on there? You want the cynical view or uh, what do you want? Give it to me. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so here's the blunt version. Um, unless it is a core part of your business, I don't care whether you, you know, plant trees on top of the corporate jacuzzi or whatever it might be, right? Uh, like it's about figuring out, you know, sector by sector, technology by technology. And, you know, and, and this is hard, right? This is not, this is not simple, straightforward, but there are one, two, three ways to cut emissions 100%. For the most part, we know that, right? Steel, one of these hard to abate sectors, not the first thing you think of when you think, let's decarbonize. Because frankly, you know, iron ore plus coal uh, is this beautiful technology around for 3,500 years or so, and yes, CO2 comes out on the other end. Now, we know that there are technologies that will cut emissions in the steel sector essentially to zero. Um, electrolysis, uh, you know, instead of heating the stuff to 1,300 degrees centigrade, you can heat it to 60 degrees to sort of the you know, temperature of, a, of your cup of coffee. Um, that's more expensive today. Of course it is. Otherwise, we would have done it already. So if you're a steel company and you are not focused on those technologies, how to scale them, how to make the economics work, how to lobby for the right policies to make the economics work, and instead you put a tree on your annual report and you boast about how you cut emissions by 5% last year. Sorry, start again. Um, and okay, maybe... a an example closer to home, the building sector, right? How do you decarbonize your home? Like, there's a gazillion things you can do, of course. And it all, you know, tinkers at the margin. You want to cut emissions 80, 90, 100%? There are basically two steps. Insulate, insulate, insulate. Electrify, electrify, electrify. And yes, then decarbonize the electric grid, of course. Right? And yes, we have those technologies. Yes, we know how to do this. Yes, IKEA sells the $60 induction plate, so there is no excuse that you can't do it. And yes, heat pumps. Oh, by the way, sold by IKEA Switzerland, not yet IKEA in this country, um, but right, even there, right? And then there's a made up name for the solar panels that IKEA Switzerland sells, Solo Varme, right? Um, you know, fine, but the point is, you know, this is IKEA we are talking about, right? Not, not that, you know, they are suddenly helping save the planet, but there is zero excuse to go in the right direction with the technologies that will actually do it. And of course, that's a very different world than let's say, you know, the, uh, the airline selling you the $5 carbon credits to make your flight carbon neutral, which by the way, it is not. I will admit that I am surprised to hear you talk about 
some actions that individuals can take as I read an op-ed of yours, very skeptical of individual action. So I'd like to ask you, what do you think the role of artists, of individuals can be in this particular context? What is the role of art making from the perspective of an economist? Um, well, let me let me go back to the individual action. So what you might have read is the 12-year-old op-ed in the New York Times, Going Green and Getting Nowhere. And yes, this is making fun of the volunteerism of carbon offsets uh, for flights, for example. Right? Of course it takes policy. Of course it takes more right, than you and I spending 10 bucks to make ourselves feel good about flying halfway around the world for the week-long vacation. Of course, right? Uh, now, I literally wrote the exact same, same thing, uh, actually by invitation by The Economist, the magazine, right? Sort of the, the you know, not your, not your activist rag, right? Um, to put it mildly, um, uh, where I literally said the exact same thing. And it is about how individual action can make a huge difference. Now, which context in this case? Well, you know, dear fellow rich people, if you don't invest into decarbonizing your own home by electrifying, by cutting the gas line, by using heat pumps that are five times more efficient than your gas furnace, for example, or uh, induction stoves, much better technology. And by the way, you don't give your kids asthma while you're at it. Um, uh, you are doing something wrong, right? Um, so in that case, it is very much you know, individual action that leads to more, right? And this is maybe the, the crucial point in this. If individual action is the, um, oh, you know, I have refused a plastic bag at the checkout counter, so I solve climate change for the day and I move on, of course not, right? If this is individual action leading to more, this is sort of, you know, the lone uh, Danish cyclist in the 60s, right? With this, you know, the Lycra suit and so on, right? Fighting against traffic. Well, by now, 70% of Danes are biking to work every morning, right? And not because Copenhagen is such a um, pleasant day to bike to work uh, in, the, in the dead of winter, right? But because one step led to the next, and then the first bike lane appeared, and then the second bike lane, and so on, right? This virtuous cycle, virtuous cyclists, if you will, um, leading from individual action to collective action and back, right? That, of course, is the name of the game here. Yes, it takes the right policies. Yes, it takes the right technologies. Yes, it takes the right individual steps to make that happen. Michael, chime in, if you will. To follow up for what Gernot was just saying, um, there's a lot of pressure, as there should be, on the oil companies and other fossil fuel producers not to produce oil and, and to leave it all in the ground. But unless, But if we are only reducing supply and not demand, all that happens is the price goes up and, and poor people are really hurt. We need to reduce demand at the same time as, as supply. The principal demand for oil, of course, is for transportation. And so we need the oil companies to produce less oil, but we need individuals to be buying electric cars and to be driving less and to do making other individual actions that reduce the demand. So the reduction of the demand and the supply go together. Stephen, what's your take? Now, we agree that policy is key and, and, and good policy is what's going to really make the difference. But that's not going to happen without a populace that really understands what's happening and, and, and supports 
a good policy. And so, I mean, we 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 look at the Yale program on climate communication, and our understanding is that, at least based on their latest studies, is that a big chunk of them, the majority of the of the American population understands that there's a problem. The problem is that a lot of too many people think they can't. There's nothing that can be done about it, and also people aren't talking about it. That those are two key issues that are really core. And that's why we think that cultural responses to the to the crisis at this point are so key. How could we fold in cultural responses to something like what you do, Gurnat? Well, full disclosure, right? I speak with PowerPoints and to fellow nerds. So um, I'm the wrong person to ask on this one. I think oh, you're the right, right person to ask uh, for that reason. Well, maybe, right? So, I mean, here we go, right? So, okay. So the audience for the kind of change that is ultimately necessary, of course, is the rest of us, right? Of course, right? Without popular support, right? None of this is going to happen. Now, here is where I frankly feel incredibly optimistic, which is this does go well beyond, right? The, the sole female SVP for, um, you know, DEI and ESG, uh, you know, uh, and so on. Um, it, this is by now a core part of many companies' strategies. And literally like this week, a uh, letter came out by some 130 or so global corporate CEOs saying, we've got to get on with it. Let's phase out fossil fuels by 2035, full stop, right? Now, to be clear, we've heard that before, right? Climate activists, or for that matter, right, progressive governments moving in that direction. In this case, we are talking Unilever. In this case, we are talking IKEA uh, saying, let's do this, let's get on with it. Why? Well, okay. Two things, right? One is um, this is the way things are going, so you might as well create policy certainty and truly, you know, in some sense, rip off the bandaid and go do it. Um, second bit is in fact all about okay, if you take a step back here and figure out what those macroeconomic drivers are that are in fact hurting us as we speak, right? Fossilflation as one example, right? Every 10 years, right? Some guy somewhere blows a fuse, right? In this case, it was the guy in the Kremlin, right? Fossil fuel prices go up yet again. And every 10 years, we are surprised that this happens. Okay, what's the answer to fossilflation? Getting off fossil fuels, right? So the aptly named Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, you don't know, it's not going to solve uh, inflation, you know, um, uh, this election circle, of course not. This is a medium long-term problem. And it's not just about supply, as Mike Sherrard said before, right? Of course, we have to um, curb demand for fossil fuels, um, which once again is where popular support comes in and much broader discussions, and not just single companies doing anything in, you know, uh, doing, doing, doing it all for us. Um, but this can only go in one direction. It is not if, it's when. And it is clear that while oil, coal, gas are in fact commodities that are fluctuating and right, price spike every 10 years when some geopolitical events force us in that direction. The alternative, 
the technologies, which by definition can only get better and cheaper over time. And yes, this is actually literally IEA, the International Energy Agency, coming out this week with, with its latest World Economic Outlook, um, saying that clean energy transition is quote unquote unstoppable. Not if, when, no, we're not winning the climate race as we speak. It takes some speeding up. But yes, it is this race, go back to nerd speak, between the climatic tipping points, the negative ones, the massive costly ones, and the positive socioeconomic tipping points where once you go in that direction, there is no going back. Renat and Michael, I'm going to come back to you in a little bit to ask each of you to really think about ways that folks like those who are in this conversation can intersect with your work, how artists can integrate. There are uh, cities like mine in Los Angeles and in New York, which bring in artists to work in uh, their public departments in different ways. I'm not sure if that's an option within a legal framework or as an economist, but I really want to hear later on ways you think that that you might be able to do some intersectional work with artists. But first, I want to talk to Anna. What do you think about all this, Anna? I think that um, I heard a lot of green ing, like green wishing. I think I I suffer from green lusting because affordability. I mean, I drive, I don't drive a green car. I can't afford one. That's just the reality of it. And so as a renter as well, a lot of things that Gernot was talking about, it doesn't even, it's not applicable to someone like myself because I cannot touch my apartment. I live in San Francisco where there are huge restrictions as to what one can do. And so that's just, I come to the, the, the terminology of access, right? Who has access? And talking about technologies, I mean, the, <laughs> the funny way in which evolution works, right? We're talking about another thing that Gernot was talking about of the lone Danish person on the bicycle, right? Um, so the lone Dane, we had the first, um, the first folks that really pushed paving in the Bay Area in San Francisco were bicyclists. So the mass expansion of pavement that occurred in the Bay Area was due to bicyclists, which everyone was opposed to. So bicycling actually has a really um, contentious history where it was the introduction of the pavement, the industrialization, and then came the cars, but it was actually the bicyclists who pushed paving here in the Bay Area. And now bicyclists are coming back and pushing, trying to push and make their way more accessible um, and not so they don't, um, the, 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 the city's kind of getting out of control with cars as well. And so it's this, when we talk about technology and evolution, it's not a straightforward line. It's not just in one direction. I think we turn, turn to, we tur take to turning around and swirling in different directions. And so what causes conflict at one point might be the solution down the road. Um, and again, I mean, thinking about, I don't understand some of the terminology when it comes to the market and fossil fuels, but what I do know is that 70% of the surface area of the planet is water and it's the ocean. And we're, we're spending so much money in investing to outer space 
So we think about, and I think Anne can probably speak a lot more to this, but submersibles, there's, there's, um, I was listening to an NPR story about how there's only been like four major, not the one that exploded or imploded, but there's only been really four major submersibles that have been created. And you think about the exploration of space. So how much are we doing to tr truly try and understand and become literate about what makes up the most amount and takes up the most amount of space? As I was talking to um, within the the New York uh, the New York Times Climate Summit last year, one of the things that I was talking about was was ocean literacy, and I said, you know, I think a lot of these politicians might understand ocean, the oceans from the surface level on their yachts and their boats. I really wish uh, someone like Mitch McConnell would learn how to surf, so they really understood what it's like to be in the water. And a young poet looked at me and she said. I would like to learn how to surf. And it's Youth Versus the Apocalypse. This woman that um, co-runs and helps run uh, poets that are towards teaching and being able to talk about climate change through poetry. And I said, oh, I can facilitate that. And so I ended up, it took me a year to be able to do this, but I created access to them by teaming them up with Me Water Foundation, which teaches surf to young black and brown youth all around the Bay Area. And we did a mashup where we taught the poets to surf and then the poets taught all the other youth to write poetry. And it was, again, it's the, the ability to just create access to this incredible opportunity to understand the ocean and be able to connect with the ocean on this different somatic plane, right? And be able to drink the energy, the joy of what the beach, the ocean, the water can bring to people that have never been able to have access to the ocean here in the Bay Area, even though they grew up in the Bay Area. And I think that's the power that we can bring to folks. It's not numbers and statistics, it's access to something where they can experience the beauty of it and understand the power and how we need to protect it. I know you're a visual artist, but I'm totally convinced you're a poet also after everything that you've said today. This special Road to COP28 podcast was produced by the DSR Network, which is solely responsible for its content. Roundtable discussions were recorded live as they happened. The series was sponsored in part by a grant from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, hosts of the COP28 meetings to take place later this year. However, the content of this discussion, like all DSR Network productions, is entirely editorially independent, and the views presented were solely those of the participants. The executive producer of this podcast was Chris Cotmore. The producer of this podcast was Riley Fessler. This has been a DSR Network production.